Just about to finish up. This week and next week are our last two sermons. We've preached through the whole book. If you haven't been with us for that, sorry, you're going to be lost today. No, we wouldn't do that to you. But we are at the end of a series. We're at the end of a series. Next week, we're going to wrap up the entire book. So especially want to encourage you to be there for next week. We'll put some of the pieces in place. Malachi being the last writing prophet. The last writing prophet before the New Testament. So sort of the, the, the last word in the Old Testament before the coming of Jesus. Throughout uh, our preaching of this book, one of the things we've done is apply these words directly to us, the church. We have applied the concern for God's name with a uh, concern for Christ's name. And for some of us, this is, requires no thought. Like, of course, yes, this is a, God's word to us, the church. And when we say, Talk, God talks about honoring his name. Of course, that means we need to honor Christ's name. And we have variously defended that at, at points throughout this sermon series. But we're, we'll especially kind of bring that all together next week and, and some this week. There is warrant in our text this morning for thinking and, and preaching this way uh, through Malachi. Uh, but before I begin, let's just actually go to the Lord now in prayer. Lord, we do thank you for our time in this book. We thank you for your word to us through the prophet Malachi. And we do pray that uh, we would hear it now, that we would be convicted, that we would heed the warnings that are in it, that we would receive the encouragements that are in it. That if we are not yet those who honor your name, who, who serve you, that we would be changed in the hearing of your word that we might be found in your Son, Jesus, that we might experience his righteousness shining down on us. We ask this all in his name and for your glory. Amen. You know, throughout, throughout this book of Malachi, God has been calling out to the audience uh, with a series of rhetorical disputations. And that just means that, that the way the book is structured is God will make a statement. Usually it's an indictment against the people. And then he gives a, a hypothetical response that the people make in defending themselves. And then God brings the hammer down and he makes the charge stick vividly. So you find in Malachi, it'll go like this. God says, you have robbed me. And you say, how have we robbed you? And then God says, how you ask, boom, hammer. And you remember that the audience the entire time, the people of God, the people that God has been addressing have been the visible people, right? He's not, he's not addressing pagans out there. He's addressing the gathered people of Israel, the people who showed up at the temple, people who brought sacrifices, who participated in worship. Throughout the book of Malachi, there have, he has been... Uh, implicitly addressing two different groups within that larger collective. The wider group known as Israel, within that there were two different groups. And those two different groups become uh, explicitly identified in our text this morning. The first audience of Malachi, the primary audience, is the visible gathered church, the gathered people, the people who show up on Sundays, who sing songs and listen to sermons. That's who he's talking to in general. So this book is addressed to people who go to church, who make some claim to being Christian or spiritual or believing in God. And yet to this wider group, God has said, I have no pleasure in you. He has said, I will not accept an offering from you. He has said, you profane my altar. You have corrupted the covenant. Heavy words we've heard throughout the book of Malachi. 
But within that larger category of people who go to church, there are two distinct groups, as we are going to see this morning in the final disputation in the book. And which group you fall into really matters. We're already part. Just by virtue of being here, you're in some way part of the larger group. You're here at church. But which of the smaller groups you fall into really matters. It's literally life and death. If you thought that coming to church today would be a good way to hear some useful messaging about morality and give you some encouragement to be nice, you have made a category error. Today's sermon, today's text in Malachi is about life and death. Not everyone who shows up to church, who says they believe in God, who considers themselves spiritual, moral, knows real life. Two different groups in today's text. And we're going to spend our time considering each group. We meet first one and then the other. We'll look at the identity of each, what marks them out as being belonging to one group or the other. And then we'll look at God's particular words to each group. For one group, there is a grave warning. For the other group, there is a stunning encouragement. Best encouragement you could possibly receive this morning. So I invite you to open up your Bibles. We're going to be at the end of Malachi, the end of the Old Testament. If you're using the Pew Bible, it's page 802. Or in fact, if you're using most editions of the ESV, it'll be on page 802. Right before the Gospel of Matthew, last pages of Malachi. We're going to be in Malachi 3, verses 13 through 18. It's also printed in the bulletin for you. So Malachi 3, verses 13 through 18. Let's open up our Bibles and keep our eyes on, a pa- on the page. And give attention to the words of the Lord. God says, Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, How have we spoken against you? You have said, It is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge, or of as walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? Now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. And the Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession. And I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. Two groups, two groups in this text. Consider the first group. We find them in verses 13 through 15. If you were with us for our last sermon, I know it's been a while, but if you were with us for our last sermon in Malachi, you remember that just before this text, previous part of chapter 3, the Lord called out the people for robbing him. They were holding back their tithes and offerings. God commanded them, bring the full tithe. This was not just a call to bring more money. It was a call for the people to give freely and joyfully of their money, of their time, and their energy. To give that all to their religious life together, their covenant life together. It was a call to fully trust God to provide for them, to demonstrate public allegiance to Him as God, and to find their joy in fellowship with Him. God wanted their trust, their allegiance, and their joy And now in verses 13 through 15 of this third chapter, we have this final disputation. And it flows directly from God's challenge to the people to bring the full tithe. 
There are clear verbal and conceptual links that let us know we're meant to read this, to read this text in light of the tithe talk that happened right before. This is not just some unrelated challenge that God brings up. It relates directly to how the people were responding to the types of commands that God was giving in 6 through 12. In 13 through 15, God calls out how the people were responding to the challenge from him to bring the full tithe. So keep that in mind as we read. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. You say, how have we spoken against you? You've said it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of as walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? We call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. God said, test me. And he said, the evildoers put you to the test all the time and they're fine. This is the second disputation in the book that directly calls out the people's words, the things they say. And it does parallel that earlier passage. You remember back in 2.17, we heard, you have wearied the Lord with your words. But you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? There we saw the people complaining about, about God. And here too, in three, through 13 through 15, the people are complaining. But there are some unique contributions to the picture in the present text. This isn't just repetition for emphasis sake. So let's begin by highlighting some of the unique emphases in our passage. First, look at the people's response at the end of verse 13. They ask, as they've been doing, how have we spoken against you? Remember, that, that's not asking for information. That's rhetorical. That's a way of saying, what are you talking about? We haven't done anything wrong. We haven't said anything wrong. And in there, in their response, there is an emphasis that is very, very difficult, or at least awkward, to bring into English. The, the, the verbal form that they're using for the, the speaking action, it, it explicitly highlights speaking that is done amongst themselves. It's, it's reciprocal. The action in view is not just talking, it's, it's talking to each other. They ask, how have we spoken against you among ourselves? How have we spoken against you to each other? It's awkward to try to bring that emphasis of the verb into English. But the point is, in their denial, there is this emphasis, this emphasis on the speaking being between themselves. Like, this is a talk we've been having to ourselves. And the people are the ones who bring it up, right? It's not God in the dialogue. It's not that God says, you have been speaking bad about me to each other. God just says, you've been speaking bad about me. And then the people say, how have we been speaking bad about you to each other? They add that clarification. There are a couple possible rationales for this added clarification in their response. One is that they are emphasizing the fact that God should not have heard them because they weren't praying or they weren't at temple. They were just speaking to each other, shooting the breeze on the streets of Jerusalem during normal daily life. In other words, it'd be kind of a surprise in their denial. Like, how do you know what we said amongst each other? Another possible flavor to this detail is that they're emphasizing that Anything said amongst them shouldn't count because it wasn't said to God. In other words, this is a private conversation. Why were you listening? And if either of those rationales sounds strange to you when we're talking about religious Jews, religious people who believe in an omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient creator God, just pause for a moment to reflect on how often our ideas about God are wrong and how often our actions don't really line up with our confessed ideas about God, even when those ideas are right. 
I mean, we see the type of thinking from verse 13 all the time in our superstitious world, right? People show hesitancy to walk into a church building because they feel guilty about something. Have you, have you ever met someone who's afraid to visit church because of something in their mind that they didn't want to have before the presence of God? I've got news for those people. He's outside too. You know, when people find out that I'm a pastor, having spent time with me not knowing that I am a pastor, there's often a look of fear that passes across their eyes. Oh, no. Often they will apologize to me for things that they've said. Now, sometimes it's just they are worried about offending me. And you can see that. But not always. Not always it's about offending me. Sometimes it is very clearly a superstition. It's very clearly, oh no, I said that in front of a pastor, and now it's on God's radar. Now it's going to count against me. Again, more news, he is listening when I'm not there. As we have already seen throughout Malachi, the people were very good at sort of compartmentalizing their lives. Here's religion, and this is my real life. And I try to make sure my religion doesn't affect my real life too much. Certainly not my bottom line or my energy or my pleasures. Remember in the last passage, God said, you are robbing me. You people who come to worship, who participate in public worship, are actually robbing me by withholding your full trust, allegiance, and joy in me. It's not just the post-exilic Jews that struggle with this. It's still clearly true today. We are very good at compartmentalizing our lives. And even if we would never articulate it in a theology textbook, we often live and act as if we believe there are parts of our lives that God is not privy to or that he shouldn't be privy to. That's their objection. Why are you holding us accountable for things that we said to each other? This has nothing to do with you, God. Now, here's the first takeaway, a truth that functions both as a warning and an encouragement in our text, but we get the warning side first. God is always listening. God cares about all the moments of our life, not just the times that you choose to give him. You need to take that seriously today. God knows everything you say. God is always listening. He hears all the comments. He sees all the moments. He knows all the things that you want to keep separate from your religious life. Now let's look at the actual content of their complaining to each other, the things that God knows that they're saying. We find it in verse 14 through 15. This is what they were saying to each other when they thought God wasn't listening. It is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge? What do we get out of this? We get out of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts. We call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, they put God to the test and they escape. Now remember, the context is key for this. This is the type of thing that the people were saying to each other in response to challenges from God like, bring the full tithe. Test me, trust me, show allegiance to me, enjoy me. The words here in 14 through 15 are how the people talk to each other in response to being challenged by God. So you have to understand what this first group is actually doing with their words. They aren't just complaining or maligning God's character. They are certainly doing that, but they are also encouraging each other in their current ways, in the status quo. They are justifying their lackluster worship to each other. God had just called the people to full participation in worship, to bring the full tithe, to give their full trust allegiance, to enjoy him. 
He was calling them to be willing to trust him to provide and so give cheerfully and joyfully to the ministry. God was calling them to make a public display that witnessed to the world where their priorities and allegiances lied. God was calling them to find their primary joy in fellowship with him and his people. Remember, these people making these complaints, the ones who God was challenging, they're not atheists. They were people who participated in public religion to some degree. And as we've seen over and over in Malachi, just because you participate in some form of worship does not mean you're honoring God. Just showing up doesn't mean you aren't robbing him. Doesn't mean you really trust him. Doesn't mean you've allied yourself with him or you know the joys of the Lord. People were actually dishonoring God. They were despising his name with their worship. And so the same people that claim some form of religiousness when challenged by God's word that their religion actually dishonors God, that they need to repent and amend their ways, they get together and they complain about God and they commiserate so that they feel justified in the level of their service. They get together and encourage each other that they're just fine. They say, what's the point of being that religious? I mean, there's nothing really in this for us. What do we get out of the type of worship that's being commanded? That type of full-hearted faith, allegiance, and joy. That type of devotion that this prophet Malachi is on about. Why walk as in mourning before the Lord? In other words, why, why put so much into our faith that we suffer? There's no need to be that religious. If you take Jesus so seriously, that's just going to make life hard. That's what's going to happen. Well, what's the point of that? I mean, the complainers are right in one degree in recognizing that the faith that God is calling to them will involve suffering. They understand, rightly, that sometimes it hurts to follow God the way the prophets are calling us to, the way his word commands us to. There is suffering. When God said through Malachi, test me and see if I don't bless you, the people said to each other, test God. Unrighteous people test God all the time. They get away scot-free. The arrogant are the blessed ones. Evildoers prosper. Why be obedient to God when it hurts, when they're suffering for it? When all the quote-unquote disobedient people have it so much easier, right? The people are putting air quotes around these ideas, obedience, evildoer. They're using that language, but so often is the case when you look around the world and you see things that God's word tells you is evil, but it's going well for those people, you start to think, well, that's probably not that evil. That's probably not that bad. That's probably actually a good thing. They're claiming that these standards coming from God's word are not really worth it. And again, if you think, how does that work? How does it work to say you believe in God, but you think he's wrong, or you can challenge his word? Just remember, we all do it. We all do it when we decide that we're going to be our own private judges of what truth and religion is. I decide what I think God is like, uh, how I like to imagine him, what priorities I want him to have, what things I think he really wants out of my life. I mean, how does it make sense to say you believe in God, a transcendent creator outside of yourself, but then you get to decide what to think about him? It's irrational, but we all do it. We say we believe in God, but we make ourselves God above God. And when challenged by God himself in his word, the human heart bucks. We challenge the word. We fight it. We say things like, what's in it for us to do what God is calling us to do? Being that extreme about our Christianity? What's in it for us? Nothing, that's what. Or nothing good, just suffering. Suffering. I get to decide how much of Jesus I want in my life. 
And for me, that's just enough to make me feel good and not enough that it's going to affect my life negatively in any shape or form. That's what they get together and they say to each other. These are the kinds of conversations that God is listening to. That's right. You do you. Religion is private and personal. Who is anyone else to call you to greater faithfulness? Faithfulness looks different to everyone. And there's certainly no reason to kill yourself over your faith. Just look at Tim down the street. He's evil, according to many of those overly serious preachers, and he does just fine. It's what the people are saying to each other when they think that they are out of earshot from God. They justify not bringing the full tithe. They confirm each other in their own lackluster, God-despising worship. These temple-goers, they get together and they become an echo chamber of apathy to God. But to this group, God says, I hear exactly what you have been saying outside these walls. I hear it. I know it. As we move on in our text, that's the first group. That's the first group. As we move on in our text, we get an explicit introduction to the second group. The second group of people that you find within the visible congregation. Look with me at verses 16 through 18. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. This is the second group, distinct from the first. They respond differently to the rebuke of God. They are called in these verses those who fear the Lord, those who esteem his name, those who serve him. And this is key because you remember throughout the book of Malachi, the ultimate issue behind each specific issue has been the honor and glory of God. The esteeming of his name. Remember back in chapter 1, God said, If I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you. O priests who despise my name. He also said, from, For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord. And he says, for I am a great king, and my name will be feared among the nations. In chapter 2, he said, if you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send a curse upon you. When describing the ideal priest in chapter 2, God said, he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. When God summarized sin in 3.5, the crowning description at the end, at the root of all evil, was they do not fear God. The root problem throughout the whole book has been lack of recognition and esteem for God's name. No respect, no fear, no honor, and that indifference to God was packaged in a type of religiosity, a type of worship, a type of public religion and spirituality that clearly communicated that lack of honor and fear to the watching world. In this book, the Lord has been calling those who make public profession back to really fearing and honoring him. And now for the first time in the book, we have an explicit reference to those who actually do, those who actually do honor his name. We meet those who fear the Lord. So again, looking at verses 16 through 18, let's peek in on what God has to say to those, those who actually do esteem his name. Those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make my treasured possession. And I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. 
Then once more you shall see a distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. A few observations. Again, we're explicitly told that these people get together and they talk to each other. The same reciprocal verb form is used, but it's also coupled with an additional with one another. So though it doesn't sound like it in English, and this is good English, it is redundant in Hebrew. They got together and they spoke with each other to each other. There's a, there's a double emphasis there of the, the getting together and the speaking. And what were they saying? The passage doesn't explicitly say, but we can hazard an educated guess. They weren't talking about the weather. The ones who didn't fear God got together and encouraged each other in their apathy. The ones who do fear God did the opposite. They got together and they encouraged each other to rightly respond to the word of God. To run the race, to continue in following the Lord meant walking in mourning. When trust required sacrifice, when allegiance to God meant rejection by the world, when joy in the Lord meant giving up joys in the world. It's an important point. It's a worthwhile application from the way the text emphasizes the speaking together of both groups. Christians, you need to get together with other Christians and talk. You need to encourage each other. You need to set each other straight, remind each other that Jesus said the world will hate you because it hated him. Your talking together is not just about friendship. It is about pointing people back to God's word, applying God's word, meditating on God's word, and helping encourage each other to respond in obedience when that word challenges you. Part of what we do in church is to get together to speak God's words in Scripture to each other. Listen, if, if your primary input in life is from outside the church, if your primary relationships, if your most meaningful connections are with those who do not fear God, you're never going to hear the things you need to hear in order to finish the race. Fight the good fight. Persevere in Jesus Christ. You're never going to say the things you need to be saying in order to persevere. Eventually, you will acquiesce, and you'll start talking like everyone else around you. And soon you'll find that you believe like them too. Malachi is describing here the same reality that Paul would exhort in Ephesians 4, where Paul said, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, the whole church, all of us, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Speaking the truth in love, we grow up in love, we build each other up in love, in the truth. You need to get together and speak the truth in love. Remind each other of the encouragement that you find in the scriptures, such as the encouragement that we have here at the end of chapter 3. In verses 16 through 18, we have a direct message concerning those who really fear God. We need to hear this. What does it say about them? It says the Lord paid attention and heard them. He paid attention and he heard them. Why does it say that? The idea here is not that there are some things that God doesn't hear. It's making the point that God cares. God cares about this. He cares about his people. He cares about the suffering of his people. He cares about what they go through isolated as exiles in the present world. And it says a book is drawn up, a book of remembrance written before the Lord. What's written in the book? Their names. Their names. God is keeping track. You know, there's a, 
There's a famous place. It's a restaurant in downtown Chicago. It's called uh, Oven Grinders. Many of you may know it. They are famous for, among other things, the fact that they take no reservations. And the host takes no names. If you don't get there well before opening, which is at four, you plan to wait a good while. The host doesn't write anything down. He just asks, how many are in your party? And then he tells you how long the wait will be. The very first time I tried to go there, I went with Tom and actually another guy, and we got there at 4.15, only 15 minutes past opening. It was already packed. Host asked how many were in our party, and he said it'll be a two-hour wait, and then he walked away, and that was it. And I know, I, have heard this, I had heard the stories, I know this guy is famous for this, that he's amazing, that he always remembers, but I didn't have any faith. We did not eat there that night. I was theoretically up for the long wait, but not with this guy writing nothing down and us just trusting him. Easily lost in this sea of people. I just couldn't bring myself to trust this person. He didn't write anything down. The image in Malachi is an encouragement to God's people. It's not that God needs to write something down, but it's your names are as good as written down in a book in heaven. God isn't going to forget you. You aren't going to get lost in the crowd of history. Paul and John both call this the book of life. Each and every single esteemer of the name of Christ is never forgotten. And they are going to receive the reward of eternal life that God has promised. Every single individual believer is remembered by God. Not just as a collective, but every individual remembered by God. God uses similar imagery in Isaiah. He says, can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? These may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. I've carved you into the palms of my hands. Brothers and sisters, if you esteem the name of the Lord God, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, then God has your name recorded in heaven. In Revelation, it's clear that your name was actually recorded before the very foundation of the world, carved into the palms of God's hands. He will not forget you. Verse 17 goes on. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, on the day when I make my treasured possession. I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Look at what God says. They will be mine when I make up my treasured possession. That, that, that phrase, treasured possession, that's actually a pretty rare word in the Bible. It's basically a technical term. It only occurs eight times and five of them in the Old Testament, and five of them are God calling his people, his set-apart people, my treasured possession. And God's use here is recalling for us the very first time that it's used, back in the establishment of Israel as a nation, right after the Exodus. In Exodus 19, right before God gives them the Ten Commandments, he says to them, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession. Among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Like, like what we heard earlier in Peter, applying this to the church. That's part of our rationale for why we can apply this to the church. In Deuteronomy 7, we read, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. See what's happening. In Exodus, God said that Israel will be my treasured possession if they're obedient. And now at the very end of the prophetic ministry in the whole Old Testament, God says, looking forward to the final day, that those who esteem his name 
will make up that treasured possession. In other words, those who esteem his name will be counted as obedient. Those who esteem his name will be part of this holy nation. So what makes the difference is not birth or any particular national allegiance or religious upbringing. What makes the difference for whether or not one is considered part of God's treasured possession, part of his holy nation, is whether or not you esteem the name of Christ. And just think about the import of this word that God chooses. His treasure, treasured possession, valuable to him, desired by him, something that he delights in. He he owns the whole world. All creation is his. Grand Canyon, his. Atlantic Ocean, his. Mariana Trench, his. Sun, his. Andromeda Galaxy, with all its stars and all its light and heat and power, his. I mean, he stakes his claim over all of it as creator over and over in the Bible. It's all witnesses to his glory, yet he describes his people as his treasure. That's my treasure. If you fear the Lord God, if you esteem the name of Christ, regardless of your background or birth, the Lord has written your name in the book of life, and you are a treasure to him. You are precious to him. Like a father delights in a son, God delights in his people. If you are in Christ, God delights in you. And God says, like a father with a son, he will spare He will spare those who fear him. Don't miss this encouragement. He will have compassion. He will forgive. The point is not that these people receive their due for being paragons of moral virtue or perfectly pure worship. The point is that God esteems and shows compassion on those who recognize his supreme goodness and glory and value and so fear and honor him, though themselves being sinners. The entire book has been a call from God to turn from ignoring his name to valuing it and showing its value in your life and worship. Therefore, those who in view here are not the ones who are morally perfect, not the ones who have never failed at honoring his name. It's the ones who turn to recognize the honor and glory of God, that his name deserves their praise and devotion, that God deserves their faith and allegiance, that he ought to be enjoyed even though they fail in that. I mean, you can see it from the flow of the whole book. Everything leading up to where we are now makes it clear that the point is not that there are those who are perfect in worship, there are those who are sinless, and then there's all these false worshipers, the sinners. No, those are not the categories we're operating with here. We have to get this right if we're going to understand the encouragement in verse 18. God has been calling in the whole book. He's been calling out. He opened with this statement, I have loved you. And God's purpose was both to warn and call people back, to shape and refine them with his word. Remember earlier, in chapter 3, when the angel of the covenant, when the Lord of the temple comes, as God promised, God said he would purify and refine the people so that after his ministry, they would offer sacrifices in righteousness. After, after his work in them. The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. This is back at the beginning of chapter 3. The messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old, as in former years. 
It is God's ministry, his drawing near ministry, his coming close to us in Christ's ministry, the ministry of Christ, his person, his work, his life, his death and resurrection, his refining work that results in the worship of the people being pleasing to God. Back in verse 6, God said the reason his people were not consumed by the fires of judgment was because he was faithful, not because they were faithful. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. For from the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. So there are two different types of people in view in our passage this morning, and indeed in the whole book. But they aren't sinless and sinner. They are sinner who responds with contrition to the corrective of the Lord, and sinner who asks, what's the point? The categories are sinner who recognizes that God should be esteemed and sinner who makes excuse after excuse for why they shouldn't have to be esteeming God's name that much. There's a huge difference between someone when confronted with the word of God in scripture, when confronted with the prophetic witness of Malachi, when confronted with the person of Jesus Christ, when hearing that, when confronted by Christ and they see their own deficiencies and weaknesses and they respond with a broken heart and real admission, yes, yes, God does deserve to be glorified. He is a great king. He deserves praise and honor and glory in all places by all people. And I don't do it. I don't do it. I don't give him the honor he deserves. God, forgive me. I'm a sinner. I do not give you the honor you deserve. A huge difference between that and someone who confronted with the word of God in scripture when confronted with Christ, the prophetic witness of Malachi, and they say, man, stop taking all this stuff so seriously. There are two different types of people in view. Both are churchgoers, but only one fears the true God. Only one fears the Lord. The most important thing you can possibly contemplate this morning is which type of person you are. Just because you go to church, just because you go to this church, even regularly, does not mean you fear God. There is a type of pseudo-worship that clearly, obviously, is a form of despising God, even as you pay, pay lip service to Him. We say clearly and obviously because we're not talking about difficult cases, right? There are difficult cases, but that's not what's in view here. I mean, by and large, you know where you are. How do you respond to God's word? How do you respond to the idea of more faithfulness, more conformity to Christ? Is your heart beating out the words, I'm not there, but I want it? Is your heart thumping in your ears? I don't know if I want it all week, but I hear this now and I want it now. I know I'm not there. I am so full of sin. I want it. I want to be changed by your word, God. I want to know you better. I want to see you and so be like you. I want to see you more clearly and so be like your son, Jesus. Or is it, settle down. Don't be such a Bible thumper. Bring the full tithe, church every week. You tw Twice on Sundays. Bible study, prayer group, accountability. Seriously, I already believe in Jesus. I get it. I'm fine with the amount of Jesus I have. Thank you. There is a type of half-hearted, nominal, give-the-least type of Christianity that does not fool anyone except yourselves and others like you, and to which God says, you are actually despising my name. Now let's finish with the promise of verse 18. Once more, then once more, you shall see the distinction. You shall see a distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. Now, first, this note of encouragement is, is how God describes the people, right? He, he calls them righteous, right? You see in, in this description, he calls the people righteous, and he calls them the ones who serve him. Those are in parallel. They're righteous, and they're the ones who serve him. 
Remember, these are further terms explaining the same group that is called those who fear him, those who esteem his name, the ones who are purified and refined by the coming of Jesus. So you understand it's, it's not a theologizing that's alien to Malachi's thought. In Malachi, the difference between righteous and wicked is not sinner versus non-sinner. It is esteeming God versus non-esteeming God. It is esteeming Christ versus not esteeming Christ. Righteousness is counted to those who trust, ally themselves to, and enjoy God. Those who give God the least are the wicked. The entire book of Malachi makes it clear that those who fear God, that though themselves beset with sin, though themselves needing this corrective, but the ones who fear God, they are the ones who are counted righteous. They are the ones who are counted as really serving him, even though everyone shows up to church to apparently serve him. In other words, serving God is not defined by external, half-hearted participation in public religion. Even the wicked were doing that. Serving God is found, first and foremost, rooted in the way you esteem God from your heart, the way you esteem Christ, and in your response to Jesus' word in Scripture. When God says you'll see a distinction between the righteous and the wicked, the point is not you will see one because you don't see one now. Remember, the people were seeing the distinction. The distinction they were seeing is it looks like the wicked are so much better off. The point here in verse 18 is, oh, you're really going to see a distinction in that day. Right now, it sometimes seems like the wicked are better off, but oh, a day is coming when you will see a different distinction. What God envisions is spelled out in the description of the day of the Lord in the following three verses, 4, 1 through 3. I know the schedule said that that's next week, and as I was prepping this week, I was, I was torn. I was like, I just want to preach the whole book, rest of the book Sunday, but I thought Paul wouldn't be okay if I preached two hours this week and then had nothing next week. So I, I held back, but we, we still have to talk about this a little. We're going we're to get to 4, 1 through 3 more next week, but we have, to, we have to bring it in just a little today, right? So we're splitting the difference. We have to look at 4, 1 through 3 because it, it unpacks the distinction envisioned in 3.18. So in 4, 1 through 3, it says 4, because, behold, right? So I'm explaining the distinction in, in, in 18. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Two things about these verses. First is here we have the final piece. We're going to talk about this more next week. But here we have the final piece in our case for our warrant for applying all the language to Christ as we have done this morning and throughout the series. This day of fire and judgment was first mentioned back at the beginning of chapter 3. And we read that part already, but we'll read it one more time from back from chapter 3. If you just look just a little bit left on your page. The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. The owner of the temple is coming. The, the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi. So you got this angel of the covenant, this messenger of the covenant that God says is coming. And he's like a refiner's fire. And who can endure the day of his coming? He's also called the Lord, the owner of the temple. 
He both owns the temple and comes in fiery judgment, refines his people, and he is described as distinct from the Lord, sent by the Lord, sent from God. And then here in, in verses four, or chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, we return to the day of the judgment, the, the fire and the coming, and uh, God explicitly calls this day in verse 3, the day when I act, the day when I act. You have in Malachi God, and you have God sent from God, the owner of the temple who is sent, and a fire of judgment and a refining fire that is really God himself acting. You have that in Malachi, God and God who draws near. Equated yet distinct, just like in John, when John said no one has ever seen God, but the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. That's Jesus. Jesus is the angel of the covenant, the refining fire, the consuming fire, the owner of the temple, the Lord who draws near and acts in the last day. And secondly, in these, these few verses at the beginning of chapter 4, we see how 318 is unpacked. What's the distinction that we're going to see? The arrogant and the evildoers are stubble. We're going to see them as stubble, burned up with no root or branch left to them. They aren't going to survive. They will not survive Christ's second coming. And Jesus is coming back. I mean, his first coming, not just in, um, his ministry of salvation, his first coming is also the guarantee of his second his coming to provide propitiation, to provide salvation, to provide an atoning death for his people is the guarantee that he will come back in judgment. For those who have faith in Christ, who give their allegiance to him, who find their joy in him, for those who esteem his name, who fear his name, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. And that's a surreal poetic image. And at least one of the points is the beaming nature of the sun. The sun will shine down righteousness. God will be a consuming fire to those who do not esteem his name. Christ will be a consuming fire. But those who do esteem his name, he shines down righteousness onto them. Like the rays of the sun shine on the earth, bathing his people in his own light, his own righteousness. They will be like the moon that reflects the light of the sun. They will reflect the light of Christ, being counted righteous, counted righteous in him, shining with the righteous light that he shines on them. And it will be healing for them. Christ will fix the hurts of his people. All those hurts that come when because you are an exile in the fallen world, you suffer for the sake of Christ. Christ will turn your mourning into joy. You'll go out leaping like the calves and particularly highlighted in the description of the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, is the participation of the righteous in the victory of God, in the victory of Jesus Christ. God says, you, you guys shall tread down the wicked. They will be ashes under the soles of your feet when I act. The under the soul comment, that, that's Genesis language. That's the serpent crushed under the feet of the Messiah language. Paul, too, at the end of Romans, applies that to the church. Jesus achieves the victory over the world. Jesus achieves the victory over the forces of darkness. But if you are in Christ, you participate in that victory. Paul said, you will crush Satan under your feet. In Christ, Christians have victory over the world. Not only will you be kept safe and healed, but you will be victorious, vindicated, and triumphant in the return of Christ. It is in the acting of the Lord, in the day, it is the day when he acts, but part of his action is to sweep up his people into that action. 
You will experience what it means to be victorious, victorious in Jesus when he returns. So we return to that question. There's two groups here, two groups. Which group are you? Both groups show up to church. But only one group participates in the victory of Christ. So are you in Christ? Do you esteem his name? Do you take seriously when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life? Do you care about his glory? Do you care about what your life says about his glory to the watching world? How do you respond to his word? Come on, I get it already. Is there brokenheartedness? Do you recognize, yes, I don't esteem his name the way I should, but it ought to be esteemed. It ought to be esteemed. I want to esteem it. I want my life to reflect his glory better. How do you talk outside these walls? Make no mistake, the Lord is listening to what we say when we leave this place today. The Lord paid attention and he heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your son, Jesus. We thank you for our future hope in him. We thank you for the promise that you do not forget your people, that you remember each and every one of us. And so we do pray now that your word would have its desired effect, that those of us who are tired and broken and suffering would be encouraged, encouraged by the future hope that we have in Christ, and that those of us who have maybe been self-deceived and only outwardly religious but really despising your name, that we would be converted, that people would hear and so believe even now for the first time. We ask this all in Jesus' name and for the ultimate glory of his name in all places by all peoples. Amen.